We, uh, special, well, first off, welcome if you haven't been here before. And uh, my name is Brian Habig. I'm one of the pastors here. And that was Tim Udodge that was leading worship just now. We have been studying through a book of the New Testament, Romans, for quite a while. And um, we, we've got this sermon and then one more, and we will wrap up Romans. And um, it's been quite, a, quite an expedition, so I'm, I'm thankful for those of you who've gone the distance with it. But we're just going to really hone in on one verse of Romans, and I'm going to read some parallel passages, but one verse of uh, the last chapter of Romans, and all these passages are there in the bulletin if you want to follow them there. Um, several years ago, I was downtown with my son John, and this would have been when he was probably about eight, maybe nine, and um, we'd gone downtown. I think we got ice cream. We saw the downtown trolley go by, and uh, we weren't doing anything else, and we said, let's hop on. If you've, never, if you've never been on the downtown trolley, you need to do it. It's just a good free thing downtown. So we were riding around, and um, the trolley made a stop, and uh, a man and a woman got on the trolley, and they were homeless. And I hope that doesn't sound judgmental. It just was very evident from all that they were carrying and just their appearance, even their smell, that they were homeless. And um, the man sat down beside John. John wanted, John's kind of an independent spirit. And uh, so he was, he was not sitting right beside me. He was like one row behind me. So this man sat down beside him. And uh, so he was looking at John, smiling at him, and started talking to him. And he was calling him buddy. And after a while, he, uh, he could tell I was his dad. He looked at me and he said, Can I hug him? And I didn't want to automatically say yes for John, you know, like, okay, hug the man, John. <laughs> I'm not, but you, you go ahead. Uh, but I also didn't want to say no. And so when he asked the question, I just looked at John and sort of went, and John nodded and said, okay. So the man sat right beside him, and uh, he put his arm around him uh, and just just held him and cried. And it was evident that he was remembering something. I don't know what he was remembering. It was palpable that I think he needed it and he was remembering something. Um, I, I recently read about a young woman. Um, I've actually met her, don't know her that well, but when she was a teacher right out of college in her 20s, she said that um, it, it had just been so beat into their heads. Do, you know, like, you've got to be so careful about any physical touch with a student being misconstrued. And everybody was on such, you know, pins and needles about it that, I mean, just you wouldn't even touch a child on their shoulder. And she said that actually um, a guy, this is when she was single, a guy teacher got to be friends with her, and just every once in a while in her free period, we'd kind of stop by and say hey to her at her class. And an anonymous teacher, another staff member, filed a sexual harassment claim against him for doing that. So just everyone was on eggshells. And she just said, I, I was living in a town as a single woman. I had no family there. I would go weeks without a handshake. And I, here's the question I want to put before you before I read this passage. What if, in God's economy, what the gospel does to a community of people is it provides for, for this thing in us that needs human touch? 
Like, it doesn't just provide for our sins and it doesn't just provide for our spiritual change. What if it even provides for this thing that we've got inside of us as image bearers where we need not just human interaction, but like actual physical contact and encouragement? I'm going to read this verse from Romans. I'm going to read three more verses from three more of Paul's letters and one by the Apostle Peter. And if you look at what, where these letters represent, this is, covering, this is transcultural. Romans 16, beginning, in, uh, or, <laughs> begin, beginning and ending in verse, verse 16, and then these other passages. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ greet you. All the brothers send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints greet you. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. This is God's Word. Let's pray together. Our Father, we pray that you would take your Word now and not only do good things in our heart, things that we don't even know that we need, but even show us the beauty of who you are and how good the good news is. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. I don't know if you've ever heard of the writer uh, Jonathan Franzen. He uh, made a big splash with a novel called The Corrections back in the earlier 2000s. But um, he wrote a, a piece a few years ago in the New York Times, and the name of the article is, Liking is for Cowards, Go for What Hurts. Liking is for Cowards, Go for What Hurts. And he, he uses technology as sort of a window into who we are and how we do life, and there's a lot of articles like that. But he was looking specifically at the difference between liking and loving. A couple of quick little excerpts here. The simple fact of the matter is that trying to be perfectly likable is incompatible with loving relationships. Sooner or later, for example, you're going to find yourself in a hideous screaming fight and you'll hear coming out of your mouth things that you yourself don't like at all, things that shatter your self-image as a fair, kind, cool, attractive, in control, funny, likable person. Something realer than likability has come out in you and suddenly you're having an actual life. He goes on to say this, we can all handle being disliked now and then because there's such an infinitely big pool of potential likers. But to expose your whole self, not just the likable surface, and to have it rejected can be catastrophically painful. The prospect of pain generally, the pain of loss, of breakup, of death, is what makes it so tempting to avoid love and stay safely in the world of liking. And yet pain hurts, but it doesn't kill. When you consider the alternative, an anesthetized dream of self-sufficiency, pain emerges as the natural product and natural indicator of being alive in a resistant world. To go through a life painlessly is to have not lived. Now, the, the reason I, I, I put that in front of you is that um, when you talk about Christians, 
doing anything that approximates a holy kiss. We're going to try to talk, wait, what is that? What does that involve? Um, this is taking you out of the territory of safety. Is that safe to say? It's taking us out of a safe territory of liking each other, of civil interaction, and asking the question, what would it look like for us not merely to manage each other and like each other and be safe with each other, but to enter the unsafe territory of loving each other even bodily? So we've got our work cut out for us (laughs) because we're safe, and I'm very safe. In case you haven't picked up on that yet. Uh, let's, let's look at this this way. First off, wh- what are we being exhorted to do in these passages? What's the exhortation? Second, what are the barriers? I mean, what is it about us that makes this hard? And then third, ha- how could we become holy kissers? So uh, what are we being exhorted to do? What are the barriers? And then how could we become holy kissers? Okay, first off, the, the, the exhortation is very simple. Greet one another with a holy kiss. And that's echoed in, again, all these other letters. You know, it's five, that's five times in the New Testament. Peter calls it a kiss of peace. First off, greet one another. This totally goes back to Jake's sermon last week, if you were here. In fact, he, th- this verse was the end of the, of the passage that he covered. At the end of Romans... And it's interesting, you, just, you see this all through these letters in the New Testament. You've got apostles saying, greet this person, greet this person, greet this person. And that's not just, that's not just a nicety. It's saying, man, in fact, Paul says this in Romans. God, when we deserve to be cast out, welcomed us in. Uh, when we deserved His justice, He pursued us and moved toward us. Now... The way he's dealt with us, emulate that with each other. Reflect that back to each other. He's welcomed us. Welcome each other. He has greeted us. Greet one another. And as Jake pointed out, you know, don't forget, this is not just a little, you know, Bible verses strung together. This is a letter to Christians in Rome. It's the superpower of the day, incredibly large for for its day, and diverse all kinds of people, all, and he even, he, uh, Jake even pointed out, you can tell in the names the different kinds of folks. There's haves, there have-nots, men, women. Greet one another with a holy kiss. And what does the adjective holy mean in the Bible? It means something that's been set apart from common use to the Lord's service, to the Lord's ministry. So like in the, in the tabernacle, uh, a plate could be a holy plate. It could be like most other plates, but it's just that it's been set apart for a different usage, the service and the love of God. So a holy kiss is like that. It's, it's physically done the same way, but it's set apart for God. Um, I'll tell you this. I actually preached a, a, on, on this verse, these similar verses, about seven years ago, and I have, I have to revisit something I said. I had been taught at some point that the, the holy kiss, this mentioned in the first century, was always same gender. Men with men and women with women. And uh, did some more, in fact, I read more about kissing this week than I really care to go into. <laughs> the evidence doesn't seem to back that up. 
uh, so much so that very early in the church, even ironically in Rome, Christians were looked on with uh, great suspicion for multiple reasons. But one of them was that just the word got out that all kinds of men and women are kissing each other, and it gets worse. It was on the mouth. I just, when I heard holy kiss, I just, you know, just as a southerner, I thought, oh, okay, cheek. Because the other would be unholy. And as it turns, just the evidence, this is not, you know, open and shut. The evidence seems to point to men with men or men with women, vice versa, on the mouth. All right. Take, take heart. All right. We're, we're just, just hanging there with me. But listen, just in this reading about kissing, here's what a scholar said about it. Um, I, this is amazing. I'd never thought about this. He wrote, Paul was certainly the first popular ethical teacher known to instruct members of a mixed social group to greet each other with a kiss. And I don't know what, I I don't know who I thought was first. I'd never thought about that. There is no known ethical instructor before Paul telling different kinds of people, mixed social groups, to do this. What are the barriers? Now this is, I can't give an exhaustive list, but let's look at it kind of, in, in two ways. First off, what are cultural barriers? And then what are internal barriers that, that, that we bring to the table? One cultural barrier would be that, now, I, I, I can't speak for you individually, and I can't speak for everywhere, every place. I'm talking about we're in Greenville, where we are. Most of the cultural norms were established by wasps. And there's good sides to that. And there can be weaknesses to that. Um, Our culture was established by people with a greater sense of reserve than most cultures around the world. I mean, I was thinking about this even this week. Think about two of the great southern port cities are Charleston and New Orleans. New Orleans does not have wasp roots. It's just a gumbo of everything else. Think about, now, there's plenty of kissing that goes on in Charleston, I'm sure, but think about how different, just as a city, and, and how the histories have read of Charleston and New Orleans. That's kind of in the water supply, all right? A little bit more reserve, a little bit more caution. Um, the other would be this, is just, in our cultural moment, and, and I alluded to this with a single teacher working at the school, there's just so much nervousness about anything with potentially sexual same-sex or opposite sex. Um, it's harder for same gender, I think especially men, to be warm and affectionate with one another, but even the opposite sex. Now, I'll give you an example. Um, I don't know how many of you have seen the, the BBC version of uh, Sherlock Holmes with Benedict Cumberbatch. The very first episode when um, Sherlock and Watson, Holmes and Watson, have, have found each other and they're going to they're gonna have this flat in London together and they're sort of sizing each other up, there's immediately, first episode, all this tension and is one of them gay? Are both of them gay? Are neither of them gay? And just... just just awkward tension as they sort of interact about it in a very veiled way. I, I grew up reading Sherlock Holmes. 
And it was not uncommon, you know, it's written from Watson's point of view. He wrote the cases down. It's not uncommon for him to say that he was at home or he was seeing a patient and Holmes blew in and said, you know, I need your help. And he said, and soon we found ourselves walking arm in arm down the street. That, that was normative for, for two close male friends to walk arm in arm. Look at the difference between that and then the BBC version. Opposite sex. So, like, we live in an incredibly litigious world. Uh, sexual harassment, that, that sort of thing. So, uh, to some degree, everybody's on eggshells. Internally, for us as individuals, um, it can be a couple of things. One would be if you grew up in an, affa- an unaffectionate household. If you read C.S. Lewis's um, autobiography, Surprised by Joy, one of the things that he says about himself is that he had a lifelong weakness that he could not stand to be embraced or kissed by other men. And, of course, Lewis, who knows all this literature, he says, and it's actually it's an unmanly weakness. Uh, everyone from, like, warriors from Beowulf to Lancelot did not have that problem. They could kiss men and be kissed by men, but he said, I, I just I can't handle it. Well... I'm not trying to play the psychologist here, but if you read Lewis's background, what his relationship was like with his dad, not a super huge mystery. He got better at the end, but in his formative years, he didn't like that and it affected how he interacted with men. Um, I would say this too internally. The younger you are, and I'm not talking down, not being granddad here, but the younger you are, the more communication norms have involved things like smartphones and texting. Intense face-to-face interaction is harder. That doesn't mean you're a bad person. It doesn't mean you can't ever get stronger at it. It just means that that, that's a muscle that you've worked less than prior generations. If face-to-face verbal interaction is hard, you start throwing kissing in the mix, and it's it's intense. So there are these barriers. Again, that's not exhaustive, but those are things that we bring to the table. So how could people like us ever become holy kissers? Think about this. There are these acts that we do as Christians, and we designate them as holy actions. Why are they holy? Like we have things like holy marriage, and holy communion, and holy kisses. Why are they holy? They're holy because they're things that God does to us. Why is there holy marriage? Because God married us. Rich theme of the Old and the New Testament. God did not merely forgive us. God marries us, and therefore we have holy marriage. Why why is there such a thing as holy communion? I mean, Jesus gave it to us, but why is it holy communion? Because God communes with us. He doesn't just communicate with us. He communes with us. He he knows us and is known by us, and therefore we have holy communion. Why are there holy kisses? And just in my own looking at this, it made me ask the question, in the Bible, are there examples of God being kissed by us? And are there examples in the Bible of us kissing God, or of anyone kissing God? And it turns out there are. When in the Bible does a human being kiss God? Now, this requires 
that you have what theologians call a, uh, a Christology, a theology of Christ. The Bible is crystal clear on the fact that Jesus is fully man, incarnate man. He became that, but he always has been and always will be fully God. The Son of God is fully 100% God. When you see Jesus doing his thing in the Gospels, you're watching God incarnate. When did someone kiss God? There's probably a lot. It seems that there's probably a kissing culture among the apostles, and that's how it got in in the water supply. But Judas kissed him. Judas Iscariot kissed him as a, as a signal to betray him. And, uh, and that's interesting because, you know, Judas Iscariot is easy to throw under the bus, but Judas Iscariot was someone who was pretending to be close to Jesus when he wasn't close to Jesus. And uh, I would say everyone in the room has done that. We all do that. We might have done it this morning. We might have been singing about him and singing his name as we're already waiting to do something that he would hate. Um, that's how we kissed God. How, when in the Bible does God kiss a person? Now, I bet some of you have already, you've already figured it out. Do you remember the parable of the prodigal son? There's two sons in the story. We call it the prodigal son. There's two sons. But when the first one, the wild one, the young one, when he goes off and he squanders his money and he wrecks his life and he says he comes to his senses and he comes back to his dad, that his dad sees him from a long way off and he does something that men in the first century didn't do. He runs. He runs to him. And he embraces him and he kisses him. That is in the story. He kisses him and he brings him back home to celebrate and have a feast. Now... A name that I've quoted before in here is Charles Spurgeon. Remarkable guy. Uh, Charles Spurgeon was megachurch before megachurch was cool. He pastored around 5,000 people in London and preached to them without a microphone. Remarkable guy, uh, very fruitful, struggled with depression. The year before he died, he preached on three words from the parable of the prodigal son. Spurgeon died in 1892. In 1891, he preached a sermon on and kissed him. Just on those three words. Now, I want to read you a short quote from the sermon. Before I read it, I want you to think about two things. Number one, Charles Spurgeon preached this the year before he died. This is not a sermon of a young, inexperienced minister. This is a bizarrely gifted minister of the gospel at his golden maturity. Second thing is this. This is in the thick of the Victorian era. It's the 1890s. And in the Victorian era, tenderness, softness, doting on a child would be, that'd be the area of a mother. Fatherly responsibilities in the Victorian era were more head of the home, leadership, provision. Everything else was more ambiguous. Spurgeon's preaching on he kissed him. And here's what he says. I will tell you the way I think the father behaved towards his son who had been dead but was alive again, who had been lost but was found. Let me try to describe the scene. The father has kissed the son. 
and he bids him sit down. Then he comes in front of them and he looks at them and he feels so happy that he says, I must give you another kiss. Then he walks away a minute. But he is back again before long saying to himself, I must give him another kiss. He gives him another for he is so happy. His heart beats fast. He feels very joyful. The old man would like the music to strike up. He wants to be at the dancing. But meanwhile, he satisfies himself by a repeated look at his long-lost child. And then he says this, O sinner, if you did but know how God would welcome you and how He would look at you and how He would bless you, surely you would at once repent and come to His arms and heart and find yourself happy in His love. That's a Victorian man in the 1890s, the year before he dies. And I I don't know this to be the case, but I'm going to make an educated guess here. The only way he could preach a sermon like that in his cultural moment was that he had experienced that. And this gets at something that really is the answer to, how could people like us ever become holy kissers? We give to others what we experience from God. And I'm being very intentional in the way that I'm saying that. I'm not saying that we give to others what we know about God. We give to others what we experience from God. If you know factually that God is loving, but what you experience, what you feel toward Him, is that He's a taskmaster and He's hard, that's what you'll give to people. But if you really feel that He is rich in mercy, He'll lavish you with His love, that He looks at sinners and He is so glad to see them come back and say, help me, that He wants to just sit them down and kiss them repeatedly. That will change how you treat people. The reason that we did that Scripture reading beforehand of, here's a Pharisee, and he knows everything about the Law and the Prophets. And God, incarnate, came into his house. And what did he do? He kept him at a safe distance. He had him in and he was safe with him. But there's another woman, not invited, who is unsafe with him. She lets her hair down, which would be a signal of promiscuity. And it says she lived a sinful life in that town. We don't know what that means, but it seems to have sexual connotations. She lets her hair down. She cries. She makes a mess. She cries on his feet. She kisses his feet. And if a woman who lived a a sinful life in a town lets her hair down and kisses a man's feet, what do you think the other guests are thinking? I guess they know each other. But what does Jesus do with that? He uses it as a teaching moment to say, Simon, do you see this woman? I came in your house. You didn't even do the cultural norms. You didn't kiss me on the cheek. You didn't anoint my head. You didn't have my feet washed. She has done all that to the nth degree, including kissing my feet. Why did she do that? And here's the teaching moment. Those who have been forgiven a lot, love a lot. Those who have been forgiven little, love little. Those who think at the end of the day, what the level of mercy that I needed is not lavish. Therefore, what I give to you will not be lavish. I didn't need it. 
What we experience from God is what we're going to give to other people. So, all right, back to this kissing stuff. What do we do with this? And I'm I'm going to say three things. Number one, do not joke it away. Do not joke it away. And I'm not trying to be unnecessarily stark about it, but just to say when, when apostles keep saying something, we need to listen. The Nicene Creed says that our church is the one holy, Catholic, and apostolic church. Jesus gave authority to these men to speak and to minister in His behalf and even to give us things that are the very Word of God. When the apostles keep saying to followers of Jesus, greet each other with a kiss, it means something. So let's not, let's not walk out of here and joke it away would be the first thing I would say. Because I, I feel the temptation to do that myself. The second thing is this, is, is to understand that holy kissing is going to stretch everyone. Because if you're already a really warm, affectionate, huggy, kissy person, you've been sitting here thinking, okay, this is what I'm talking about. I have been waiting for this sermon for five years. And then you've got other people sitting here right now thinking, like, I bet I can make it to the car right after the Lord's Supper before a weirdo touches me. Everybody's going to be stretched by this. Uh, you know, to the, um, to the first person who's just like, yes, you know, like, let me get my hands on everybody. What you may be feeling inside yourself is that you're going to be Robin Williams, you know, in, in Goodwill Hunting. And you're going to find this hurting Matt Damon person in our church. And you're just going to just envelop him in a hug until he dissolves and has a breakthrough moment because of just the tenacity of your affection. And that could happen. They could also mace you. (laughs) And you need to understand, not everybody in the room is on the same page about this. And again, we we come to this with different things. But I would also say this, if you're the latter person, you know, can I get to the car before somebody touches me? I want you to think about something. I want you to think about what if that thing that's going like, yay, get me out of here. That is something in your heart where sanctification just hasn't gone. You know, sanctification is the biblical word for being conformed to the image of Christ. The catechism says that sanctification is God renewing us in the whole man. If you don't want to be touched and you don't want to touch others, no one can make you do it, but understand that like, there's a significant part of your humanity that's not experiencing Christ-likeness. And it's not ministering Christ-likeness. I mean, it's not just a matter of, hey, I don't need hugs, so I'm not going to give hugs, and we're good, I like the worship, that's great. We can shake hands. Great, but like, we need followers of Christ to be able to hug and maybe kiss the hurting older person when they can't reciprocate, what if God is working your muscles here to be able to do that then and there? To be the body of Christ to that hurting elderly person who doesn't get hugs and who doesn't get kisses. That this is, like, this is the gym for working that with each other. We need it, but like, 
so that we can go give others. Um, the third thing is this: is and I'm not. I, this doesn't make anything easier. And if it's unnatural to you, it'll still be unnatural to you. But here, here's what I want to exhort you to do: is to connect kissing to remembering. Connect kissing to remembering. A movie that I love, 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 and it's a movie that I can, with a clear conscience, recommend from the pulpit, is um, Babette's Feast. It's a movie made in the 80s. It's a foreign film. It's Danish. So you have to read the subtitles. In five minutes, you won't know you're doing it anymore. And long story short, it centers on a group of very religious, hard people in this coastal village. Pietistic. Not pious. Pious is good pietistic, hard. And they've gotten harder over the years. And through a set of circumstances that I'm not going to say, at the end of the movie, they have the feast of a lifetime, an inexplicable feast. And when they have finished the feast and they've left the room where they've eaten, they they step into another room and uh, they have coffee. And one of the women sits down at a piano and she sings. There, there's an, the, the people are elderly. There's an older couple. The man looks like, if you, like one of those photos of a Confederate veteran who's 85 years old, just like a goatee down to here, just a hard old face, but he's Danish. And so you, you've got this old couple, and the man is sitting there after the feast. He's listening to this music, and his wife is sitting beside him. And she looks over at her husband. He's watching the music. And she takes his face with her hands. And she turns his face to him. And she kisses him. And it doesn't explain it to death, but it's obvious. She's remembering what they have. What they've been through. When we come together... Not that the holy kiss is only for Sunday mornings, but when we come together, you know, there's a couple of things that we would do well to remember together. Number one, this fallen world is very hard on everybody. And I was just talking about this with a couple of friends last night. Every person in this room, if they'll just start talking, if you just keep asking them questions, you'll finally hit this thing where you go, good night, that's like this huge thing that you're walking around with all the time. And I just never really knew that or never, I don't really think to ask you about it. They're walking around with it all the time, plus all the other wear and tear of a fallen world. That's every person that ever walks in here. We ought to remember that, but we should also remember this. Do you understand that if you believe in Jesus, that all your sin is washed away, and every other person who believes in Jesus, all their sin is washed away... And that when we're having this meal together, it's a little picture of, you know we're going to live together forever. Not just as ghosts, but like in soul, body, glorified existence. We will live together forever as family. And there will be all the nations and all the tribes and tongues and people forever. That's beyond great. One of my favorite pastoral sites when we're having communion is I'll, I'll just, if, you know, when people are giving me the shaft and walking by the cup, you know, 
is I, I look around and uh, I just sometimes see people lined up and someone will, will uh, turn around and they'll realize who's behind them in line and they'll, they'll grab each other. Just this little organic thing that happens on Sundays. Everybody is stretched by this, but whatever form it takes, I'm not going to stand here and legislate to you, but if it's a better handshake, if it's a hug for not a natural hugger, if it is a holy kiss, could we love each other? And not just safely like one another. I know that I know that takes wisdom and judgment calls. But can we do more than we do? Um, let, let me end with this. There's a there's a psalm in the Old Testament, and writer after writer after writer in the New Testament grabs this psalm and says, "This is about Jesus." They don't say it that way. They just apply it and say, "This is fulfilled in Jesus." It's Psalm two, and it's about the coronation of a, of, a, of a man, of a son. The son of the king being crowned. And do you know what it says at the end of the psalm? And think about this is, this is talking about Jesus. It says, it doesn't say believe in him. It doesn't say follow him. You know what it says? Kiss the son. Lest he be angry. And you perish in the way. Don't, don't squander and refuse the love of God come to earth. Kiss the Son lest He be angry and you perish in the way. But that's not the ending note. The ending note is this. Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. Uh, you, you may be someone who has gone on dates with Jesus before and you've never married Him. You should marry Him. Kiss the Son. Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord, we praise You as one who is the God who would kiss the returning prodigal. Your son who failed so miserably that You would kiss and celebrate him coming home. We praise You, Lord Jesus, that in your heart of love when Judas kissed you that you would call him friend to his face. What a loving God you are. Thank you that at this table you kiss us. We commune with each other. Would you open our hearts to one another to be wise, to be careful, not to be reckless, but to be warm and welcoming as you have been with us. And we ask in Christ's name. Amen.